0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail.
1: It's a very good reading of Thank We've you. Got Mail. Thank you very much. I try every single week. How, how long before no one understands that? I don't.
0: Well, that's the thing I like about We've Got Mail, is mm. you don't actually have to be familiar with AOL Online. It mm. just is a sentence. That's true. Yeah, it's not, I, it's not grammatically I've, great or nothing. Well, but, I've,
1: yeah, I've, I've whinged about the grammar of you've got mail before. Yeah. You got mail or you have mail, eh. you have got mail, is redundant.
0: You know what? Hmm. Shut up. <laughs> nah, I love you. My name is William Bibbiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and
1: Bloody Disgusting and Everybody Calls Me Bebs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN, other sites that might have me. Uh, and uh, I've pitched a lot of ideas. Good. I'm pleased <laughs> I, I was I was out of ideas and I just pitched some so I'm really I'm glad. proud of myself I,
0: I love reading your stuff and I can't
1: wait to read more of it in the new year Well thank you. Uh,
0: Happy New Year everybody this is the first podcast we've recorded in the year 2020 the start of a new decade I will hear no
1: complaints to the contrary I uh, the joke I heard and somebody had to explain it to me and I felt dumb because it was so obvious mm. is that uh, everyone says oh this is the Ramones year the band, the Ramones. It's like, uh, how is that the Ramones year? I don't understand. And they had to sing to me the opening lyric of I Want to Be Sedated. 2020, 2020 24, 24 hours yeah. ago. I was like, oh, come on. Uh, it's like so bad and obvious. And I felt so bad when somebody explained it to me that I felt bad for both of us. I just like that we're both in our 20s again. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that's... in my 20s. Yay! I, pr- I proposed the last 20s, the 1920s, were called the Roaring 20s mm. because uh, there was a big economic boom and there wasn't a, a stock market crash until 1929, so we had a whole decade of uh, just wasting money and and cr- crooked people taking advantage of everybody else mm-hmm. and getting rich. Everyone had a green yeah. light on the dock and it was awesome. More or less. Uh, and they called it the Roaring 20s. I'd like to propose that we call this the Groaning 20s. <laughs> I think we were yeah. just sort of complaining about everything. Did we call them the Roaring Twenties in the twenties, or was that later on? I think it might have I think I've seen some, some like old film reels mm. from like maybe the 40s that called it the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I just don't remember if that so was. So I don't like, know if that was like vintage from the nineteen twenties. Like we are in the midst of the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, someone probably knows it and is already writing us a letter. This is your podcast. Hmm.
0: You write us emails, letters of critically acclaimed We read them on the air, we answer them on the air, we answer your questions about Uh, movies, movie history, the industry Uh, we give you recommendations we take your recommendations we respond to criticisms about our various podcasts all the podcasts are fair game you can also just ask us about whatever the hell, this is your time and we want to give it to you um here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we've taken a couple of weeks kind of off. We uh, released our list of the best pictures of 2019, mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about. Uh, in a couple of days, we're going to be releasing our picks for the worst films of 2019. Uh-huh. And then we're going to be talking about the best films of the decade and the worst films of the decade. Somewhere in the middle there, we'll probably do some new movie reviews. Um, our Cancel Too Soon delayed a little bit because of the holiday. We'll get back on that real fast. And also, if you're listening to our work on the Schmoes No... Nope, uh, uh, podcast feed our anxiously awaited podcast where we review every episode installment movie in the police academy movie franchise uh has been delayed but it is not our fault i'm gonna yeah. throw this one out there this one's we're, not on us we're
1: actually prepared yeah <laughs> this that
0: time around that one's just it's a long There's, stupid complicated thing and no one actually wants to hear it because it's not an interesting story but that all, will be all, coming yeah, soon
1: all back channel stuff but uh um, yeah we we're prepared because luckily the police academy movies are under under ninety minutes apiece. They're all pretty I think the, tight. The first one might be ninety-two and the rest are all like eighty-eight minutes. I think you they, can just speed through those suckers. I,
0: I think they knew that like no one, even the people who wanted <laughs> to be there, wanted to be there very long. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I have I just, a lot of complicated thoughts about the Police Academy movies. I'm mm. very excited to do that podcast, but that's not this podcast. Mm. This is We've Got Mail, so let's
1: answer an email. Whitney, who's up first? Uh, Rick is up first. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. This is a letter from Rick. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Whitney. Loved your episode on film noir. Yay! A genre I've been able to appreciate due to Eddie Muller's Fantastic Noir Alley segment on TCM. Great segment. Uh, he introduced me to Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. uh, Forever Ruining My Three Sons. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of other films, and a couple of other films you mentioned. I was multitasking while listening to the episode, and thus able was unable to make a list of your recommendations. Mm. I assumed I'd find a printable copy on your web page, but have been unable to find it. Have you published the list, or plan to, or do I need to listen again and compile it? Uh, uh, we we don't have a published list at the moment. Mm-hmm. We I suppose we could. We just sort of jotted something down and recorded it. But yeah, we I guess we could. Uh, we'd, uh, Whitney, we'd have to go back and listen.
0: Whitney, would you mind doing that? Mm. Just, so if I, just if I can
1: find the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, you probably remember your list, right? Kind of? I'd have to to find it. Like, if I were to write it down again, I'd have the same films, but yeah, I'd have to brainstorm a second time. Um, I mean, I think I might know mine. Um, I think I wrote it on a piece of paper and then left it here in your apartment where we were Hold on, this is... (laughs) <laughs> that was from like
0: a couple months ago now, so let me see what I got here. So, mm. eh. Anyway, uh, while you're doing that, I'll read more of this letter. Right, please uh, do.
1: Secondly, I've long felt that Batman: Mask of the Phantasm mm. not only belongs in the genre, but it was one of the better entries uh, in this in the film noir. in genre. film noir. Interesting. Uh, Bruce Wayne. Well, I mean, when uh, when Tim Burton made Batman in 1989. Mm. Uh, he took a lot of inspiration from uh, like German Expressionism, He did. which uh, noir was influenced by. So it does have sort of a noirish feeling to it. And I honestly think
0: that uh, with that German Expressionism mm-hmm. and with the sort of gangster motif mm-hmm. of the Batman
1: movie, especially the first two Tim Burton ones,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, I think they're I think they're close cousins yeah. at the very least. And uh, in fact, that he kind of like grew that in Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the running gags of film noir is that there are no heroes, just everyone is corrupt. Yeah. And I think that's a weirdly ingenious approach to a superhero movie. Well, especially something like Batman, where, where everyone's uh, really morally
0: compromised. Well, and, you know? yeah, and,
1: and Batman Returns, especially where just everybody, like the, the heroes and the villains are all just like these mutant monsters in weird outfits. Oh,
0: and then you will look at the Batman the animated series, which mm. I still maintain is one of the best TV shows of all time, not just <laughs> cartoons. Oh. Um, and they had so much more room to explore the criminal underworld of Gotham, and as a mm-hmm. result, they really mm-hmm. embraced and took on mm-hmm. those
1: film noir tropes. But let's hear more what he has okay, to Yeah, say. Rick goes on. Uh, Bruce Wayne has a tragic backstory. He has mm-hmm. re- resigned himself to a life of fighting the seedier elements of the city, not of nobility, but out of a de- desire for vengeance. Uh, in the film's flashback sequences, we learn that prior to adopting the persona of Batman, he fell in love. Andrea's love... I guess that's his love interest. Yeah, uh, Andrea, Andrea Beaumont. Uh, I, I saw the movie, I don't remember. Uh, I've, I've seen it character. a bunch of times, I love okay. the movie. Yeah. Uh, Andrea's love for Bruce Wayne is genuine, but her father's mob connections deny her and Bruce their chances at happiness. The present time story involves the traditional noir plot of Batman being mistakenly accused of murdering mobsters and his efforts to solve the crimes while being pursued by both the cops and the criminals. Hmm. It's very uh, Hitchcock, yeah. very fritz Lang. Yeah, it's got a lot in there. Uh, Andrea's return to Gotham City brings... Uh, conflict rather than happiness and while batman succeeds in solving the murders and clearing his name he is apparently unable to prevent more deaths and ends the film resigned to continuous private war at the cost of any happiness Uh, as does the series on which it's based the film used a subdued color palette and dark music those are all those are mostly, arguments. That's mostly yeah. there.
0: That's mostly there, yeah. yeah. Is there uh, more to it? I don't in addition to
1: being a terrific story, incredibly well told, evoking more emotion than any live-action Batman film to date, seriously, those graveyard scenes still get to me. I yeah. think this film checks the requisite boxes to be considered noir, and I would include it on any such list I make. I would love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the work you do. Keep it
0: up. Um, okay, so here's the thing about... <laughs> well, first off, I just want to say Mask of the Phantasm is indeed one of the best superhero movies ever made. <laughs> I love it to pieces. It's really excellent, and the graveyard scenes you're talking, about particularly the one where bruce wayne is begging the grave of his parents to let him not be batman so he can be happy and he Mm -hmm. can't convince himself that they would be okay with it Mm -hmm. that may be the most dramatic scene any bruce wayne has ever had in any movie Mm -hmm. it's really excellent stuff okay um as for whether it's a noir um noir is in many respects a nebulously quantified Mm -hmm. genre um, a lot of the things that we talk there's, there's, about are things that Cahier, there's
1: Cair Cinema came up with the phrase yeah, yeah and
0: they came up with it after
1: the fact no like yeah, one yeah. was
0: intentionally making noirs and now people do but even then I feel like the thing that like you can t- look at all of those trappings that you're talking about you know the sort of uh, the grim lighting the focus on crime um, and you could say that like okay noirs have those but also non-noirs have those mm-hmm. so for me the key defining characteristic of a film noir and your mileage might vary mm-hmm uh is uh whether anyone is a decent human being <laughs> and if they are do they make it out of the movie
1: okay uh-huh. uh huh uh like, I, I argued that Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a classic noir, or at least a riff on a classic it's noir. Certainly a, it's
0: certainly a riff. But you, like think, that's...
1: you argued that all of the characters, Roger and Eddie in particular, and even Dolores, like they're all two good-hearted people. Yeah, they're not... Fighting some pretty clear-cut evil people.
0: I think so, and I think Batman Mask of the Phantasm almost goes there to the extent that it might be nebulous. I mean, yeah, okay, Alfred's nice, but he's a supporting character, he's mm. not a big deal. Like, I mean, he's a big deal, but he's not the defining characteristic. The issue with Batman is I see Batman as a very tragic figure in Batman Mask of the Phantasm, but I don't feel that the film deals with, in a meaningful way, his own moral culpability in being a vigilante. And I think if it had done that a bit more, Mm -hmm. it would be a clear-cut case of this is clearly a film noir. But as it stands, the movie is very Mm -hmm. clearly on the side of him being Batman. They know it's sad that he has to be Batman, Mm -hmm. but
1: they also kind of argue that we need a Batman. We admire that we have a Batman, and we admire him for doing that. So I think there's
0: a a contradictory argument that also works, so I'm not going to necessarily say Yes, it's a noir, or no, it's a noir. But I think
1: there's an argument to be made either way. All right. Um, I think the only film that really confronts, and this is why it's one of my favorites, actually, the film that confronts the concept of Batman Mm -hmm. and the usefulness of a Batman is The Dark Knight Rises, which I know a lot of people kind of dump on just... For plot stuff It's a, it's a weird um, it's, Weird plotted movie It's weirdly scripted yeah. the, the pacing is really weird There's a lot of like Back-ended action But There's I a, don't mind those things Because you know, I think The ideas are really strong In that movie mm-hmm. And the idea that We have a, a Kind of a impo- Essentially an impoverished Supervillain who is confronting the wealthy of the city. I mean, it came out right when the uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff was in the news. Yeah, it was and really And this was topical. Occupy Batman. It was really topical. And sort of confronting uh, economic disparity in the world of Batman, I think, is something really vital. Yep. Because Batman could not be Batman if it were not for his extreme wealth. Definitely. And... <clears throat> He began to feel that, and he was actually confronted by other people, saying, Golly, Bruce Wayne, if you had used your money to build orphanages and you know been that sort of benevolent bin- billionaire that billionaires always say they're going to be, then Gotham City perhaps would have been better off than had you been Batman. Well,
0: when you look at the plot of Batman Begins, where mm-hmm. we find out that... Uh, the, the what was it? What's the what's Ghoul's group's name? The Shadow something? Oh, the the Foot. I don't remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't the Foot. Uh, the, 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 si- the Sinister yeah. Cabal and how uh-huh. they were trying to destroy Gotham City and the reason why. Uh, uh, they they couldn't mm-hmm. was because Batman's dad was actually helping the world. Right. With his pa- with his power yeah. and money. Like he actually did more
1: transport and stuff. He
0: arguably Which Batman did... destroyed, by the way. Well yeah. Batman Batman regardless, Batman did less for Gotham City than his father did. Yeah. Uh is an argument that they're making here. Which is why I would argue that at the very least, maybe not Batman Begins. That's a bit more broadly mm-hmm. comic booky, but I would argue that the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises are both More film noir
1: than than not. I would say that
0: if you want to argue that those are film noir, I also 100% agree with you on The Dark Knight Rises. I Mm. think in many respects the storytelling is sloppy. I think you can argue that about The Dark Knight as well. It's just more more concise. Like, The Dark Knight Rises is shoehorning so much. Like, do we really need Joseph Gordon
1: Levitt's character in that movie? Arguably not. uh, Arguably uh, not. uh, His only function was to show that. Uh, because they were going to close the cha- the book on Batman, that yeah. there was this idea that his legacy was going to continue in a way, so they needed a new character. Yeah, him. I realize but, that, but at the same I, time, so fun- did, do plot, we really need that? Plot functionally, I, I suppose not. Yeah, yeah. it could have taken that
0: a lot. They're just putting so much into the movie that maybe it's overstuffed and not mm-hmm. everything had enough time to, to really land. But yeah, you're right. The ideas are so strong. The actual filmmaking is so really just overpoweringly big. Mm-hmm. Like, um, even just the ideas are big. The idea of. Batman's nemesis in that movie, Bane, mm-hmm. being like kind of right in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. About, like when there's this great bit in that movie, I love this bit where um, um, Roland Daggett has hired Bane, mm-hmm. and he's like, "You you work for me, I pay for you." And, and Bane's like, "And do you think that gives you power over me?" Yeah, <laughs> he's just like, "You don't. I I take your money. Mm-hmm. You don't own me, and I can totally just do whatever the fuck I want." Yeah. And that's something that was just so just like, everyone in the audience just like, oh, shit, you're right. (laughs) We don't have to do and believe whatever people tell us to pay
1: us to to, Mm. tell us to do. It was just so like, ooh, what a refreshing thought. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I think you're right. right. Let's move on. Uh, Here's a letter from E. Just the letter E. Okay. Um, Hi, I am E. I'm a fan from Sweden. Okay. Okay. Uh, talk uh, I, I've been listening to your show for a while Sort of skipping back and forth between episodes Depending on my mood I'm not entirely sure how I started uh, Was any of you on Screen Junkies or Fandom Entertainment at some point? I usually get my podcast recommendations from there uh,
0: uh, I've been on Screen Junkies a few times It's been a long time actually yeah. But I've been on movie fights I was on TV fights back when that was a thing mm-hmm. And I did a couple other mm-hmm. like random things over there as well
1: I, i'm friends with some people at fandom but okay. i've never actually been involved in what they do okay uh, but i'm glad uh i'm so glad i did because not only do i love cancel too soon but i really enjoy your film reviews and find that i really trust your judgment oh, whether a film is worth seeing or not thank you that is the biggest compliment you could That's, pay seriously a critic that oof. you just trust our judge you don't have to agree with us no no just like, like fact, you take it seriously that if, means yeah a lot. if if you disagree with me 100 percent of the time but you trust my judgment that's fine. That's, well, I mean, that's, look, that's, if you disagree please. with a critic 100% of
0: the time, they're a great critic because you know that if they don't like it, you do. There you go. I've had that people
1: like try to like insult me like that. Like, I know every time you like a movie, it means I'm going to hate it. I'm like, great. Great. I'm communicating well then. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Uh, the reason for this email is I was just listening to your latest fan mail episode. This was from a few months ago. Okay. Uh, and you guys mentioned international streaming via Netflix. Mm. As someone who lives in Europe, I have a few tidbits uh, and info about streaming that might be fun to know. At least it's fun for me. It might be boring to others. <laughs> and if you want to skip all of this, go to the stars where the actual questions come in. When I was a kid and before Netflix and other streaming services became big, one of the fastest rising political parties in Sweden was called the Pirate Party. Oh. Also known as, uh, I'm going to mangle this, Pirat Partiet. Okay. Pirat yet, And their political platform was based on legalizing pirating of films and series. I kid you not. Wow. <laughs> Legalize all pirating. Wow. Well, we have something in America called the Burn Act, which I, I think allows independent distribution of international product, provided they're not protected by U.S. copyright laws. I
0: actually don't um, know about lo- that.
1: I'd, I learned about that because I was looking for, like, some obscure international things, like I, when I wanted to get with um, the Iron Man, right. or, or before they were available on DVD, uh, hmm. uh, before Abco let them go, uh, Jodorowsky's movies. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I read up a little bit on something called the Burn Act. That's what, I, and that's all I remember. No, I don't
0: know enough um, about them.
1: At that time, Sweden got most American shows about a year after they originally aired, unless it was a huge hit like Grey's Anatomy, which we were still getting a week after its original airing. But we still had access to YouTube with trailers and websites and reviews for the shows and films we weren't getting. So people knew what was out there, and pirating became huge. To clarify, in case you're unaware, Sweden is not a two-party system the way America is. Mm. We have several smaller parties, and if they get over a certain percentage of votes, they get into the government. The pirate party never quite made it above the threshold, (laughs) but they got close. (laughs) Now that we have netflix and hbo nordisk pirating has gone down significantly and part of it is the quick access other than dropping all their content internationally at the same time netflix has also smartly distributed a lot of shows internationally the same week or the week after their original air dates in the u.s uh they also distribute uh shows uh like netflix will distribute shows that aren't available on netflix in america uh, yeah like the new star trek Star Trek Discovery yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, is in America. It's only available on CBS All Access, the CBS streaming service. Right, but in other countries, and in other countries, got it on they got it on Netflix. And the reason they were able to make the show, in fact was because of international investors in Netflix. Right. Netflix Over- paid for a lot of that Star Trek show, even though it wasn't on, on it was made in America but it wasn't distributed. And, and it's easy to be
0: sort of focused on our own country mm-hmm. in that regard, but it works the other way around as well. There's a lot of uh, shows that are on regular <coughs> that are on regular networks in other countries, but mm-hmm. they only come here through Netflix. Yeah, and yeah, then Netflix yeah. brands them as original content, which I think is bullshit. Yeah. But like
1: Well it's it's Netflix exclusive. They're presented they say, by Netflix yeah, yeah, yeah. and I
0: respect them and I appreciate mm-hmm. that in some very good shows I've seen mm-hmm. that way, but
1: yeah, you didn't actually make that show, Netflix. Yeah. I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but I've always thought it was a pretty smart that most of these shows have a target audience that is most likely to stream illegally, that is, teenagers. Mm. So we get shows like Riverdale and Shadowhunters straight away. <laughs> HBO Nordisk is also different from American HBO in the sense that we only get HBO content like Game of Thrones, but also Hulu content. A lot of people thought Handmaid's Tale was an HBO original in Sweden, as well as some BBC shows. Have you seen Killing Eve in years and years? They're both great. So you basically get several streaming services, Hulu, HBO, and others, all in one. Okay. However, nothing's ever made me more aware of how complicated streaming rights and contracts can be when it comes to the CW superhero shows. Oh, no. Netflix, so far I've heard this might change, distributes episodes of of, Legends of Tomorrow and Black Lightning a week after their original air date, which is great, and I love those shows. But The Flash, on the other hand, they distribute in one big seasonal chunk after all the episodes have been aired in the U.S. Oh, that's annoying. Uh, I think Arrow used to be like that, too, but for some reason they stopped doing it. I don't know the only one show... I don't know because that's the only one show I don't keep up with. But then the female-led shows, Supergirl and Batwoman, are distributed via HBO Nordisk, and the episodes are released one or two days after their original air date. Oh. So you might imagine how difficult and frustrating it is when the CW shows crossover yeah. because it's basically impossible to follow along. Yeah. That sucks. Here's how you follow along. You wait three years <laughs> and just catch up afterwards. Um, now... Uh, now all of this was a super long-winded way for me to ask the following two questions. Mm. Where is the Shadow Hunters episode you were talking about? <laughs> I've looked everywhere. I've checked it on the podcast app. I even checked YouTube. I even Googled. I can't find it. I'm starting to think it's not real, and you guys never talked about Shadow Hunters. but if you did, I need to hear it. Oh, good golly, did we ever? Okay, um, so this is back when we th- had our was, other podcast. This was sort of like a soft pilot for Cancel Too Soon in a way, because before we were doing Cancel Too Soon, mm. we... What well, we reviewed, we had the B-Movies podcast, which mm-hmm. was distributed through Crave Online, which is now called Mandatory.com. Yeah. A lot of the B-Movies podcast episodes are still on the Mandatory website, mm-hmm. in fact. A lot of them
0: are also gone, and mm-hmm. some of them yeah. might say good riddance, but anyway. Some
1: of them are gone, some of them are still there. You might be able to find the episodes of the B-Movies podcast where, on a weekly basis, we were talking about the first season of Shadowhunters.
0: Yeah, we watched, every single week, we would watch the episode of Shadowhunters, we review the episode of and the idea was, we were obviously reviewing a show that was destined to not last more than one yeah. season, but we were going to treat it like a big deal, and the joke <coughs> was on us, the show was actually reasonably
1: successful and
0: had and a big it fan It went, went on to,
1: like, four seasons or something. It, you know. it lasted a while, and good for that. Yeah. Honestly, it was a fun, yeah. silly show. Like and I was, I was following all the stars on, on uh, Twitter, like, thinking, oh yeah, this is really great, we're really going to go, we're going to go forever, guys, and I I was just waiting for the inevitable well I guess that's it for us and it didn't come. I it know, was frustrating. But
0: so uh, what happened was that was our dry run for uh, reviewing television. And when Shadowhunters didn't end up being what we thought it would be, like we said, let's do what we thought it was going to be. And then mm. we created cancel too soon, uh, in order to talk about TV's greatest failures, which we mm. thought was a really interesting niche of history that was largely overlooked, except for the occasional article where people talk about short-lived shows. Mm. Um, so uh, you should be able to find some of those. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think we called attention to them too we, much, but basically. <laughs> Look for when the original Shadowhunters was on TV, and then find a Bibulus podcast yeah, episode the, the,
1: the date that airs around yeah. there. Um, we called the segment "the shunting" <laughs> after Brian Yuzna's Society, also which is Shadow hunting, Shadow hunting, yeah. shunting. Yeah, uh, it, it sounds gross. Uh, if you've seen Society, it, it is, is gross. Yeah, it's amazing. It See, is. watch. The, don't look up anything about the movie Society and just go watch it.
0: Yeah, yeah Don't don't. Directed by Brian Yuzna. There uh, might be a few other movies with that title, but
1: yeah, it is. One hell
0: of a thing.
1: Anyway, there was another question. Um, The other question, uh, this is also about Shadowhunters. Shadowhunters, (laughs) as you know, probably know, are based off of really popular books. There are a lot of books being adapted into film series right now. Do you guys have any books that you really enjoyed that are really excited about being adapted? And if you are excited about... uh, that you wish were being adapted. Okay. Um, and he, he actually l- gives a very long list of f- books. He's excited about, but I'm going to skip that part. Just okay, to, like kind of synopses book. of these book series. Oh
0: yeah. We're not going to do all. No.
1: I have a million more, but uh, this is already a way too long story. Uh, looking forward to future cancel too soon episodes. Thank Sincerely. You. E. Yeah. Sorry. It's canceled.
0: soon has been mm-hmm. on a bit of a break for the holiday, but we will be back soon. Um, as for book series, we would love to be movies. We've all got some, mm-hmm. um, I, the book series that for me, I always loved. Mm -hmm. Um, that I always hoped would become a... I thought maybe it'd be like a TV series someday. Like, maybe that would work. I didn't really imagine it being a hit movie just because it's too chill. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a series of books by Patricia Reed. W-R-E-D-E. Reed. uh, Called The Enchanted Forest Chronicles. Hmm.
1: And they were delightful. (laughs) The opening uh, book is called Dealing with Dragons. We're, we're talking specifically about YA fantasy fiction, yeah, yeah, I am, I am.
0: And these, this is this is YA before YA was like super popular for being about fantasy fiction. Yeah, this is just back when you're like books for middle schoolers, yeah, um, before Harry Potter really kind of cracked cracked that. Yeah, open. these these came out in like the nineties, mm-hmm. and. Um, The first one was about a a princess who wasn't interested in princess things. She wanted to learn sword fighting and how to rule kingdoms. And uh, when her parents finally insisted that she marry the most boring ass prince alive, Mm. she didn't know what to do. And then uh, she finally decided to get herself kidnapped by a dragon like on purpose. Sounds like Shrek. It's got it has got a, it's it's Shrek is a little bit more like clever and ironic. Mm. This is more just mildly subversive and fun. Okay. So it, the whole book initially was her living with a dragon named Kazool <gasps> uh who they were just good roommates and friends. And then every once in a while, a prince would show up or a knight, and he'd try to rescue her, and she'd have to explain, like, no, 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 I'm just living, it was basically like a gay relationship. Like, it was basically okay. just like, it was just that, like, no, 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 Yeah, we're, we're. I know you don't understand this because you're really backward. Uh, we're happy. <laughs> were really cool, and uh, was it a romance between the no, woman and the guy? No, dragon? no, or, okay. no, they were they were both women, and they were just like it was more like um, I, I, I don't know. I, you could read that into it. In later books, she ended up getting married to a guy, but um, Boo. It, it, it was the, all the books were really charming and funny and sweet and. Um, had an unexpected sense of humor. Okay. Um, and I really, really like them all, and they hold up pretty good, so if you ever get a chance to, they're really light books. They're, like, mm-hmm. the first couple of Harry Potter books in terms of, like, their, like, reading density. Mm-hmm. Like, you could get through them all in, like, a week if you had nothing better to do. Like. Okay. So, like, but yeah, the Enchanted Forest Chronicles, I would love to see, like, a chill fantasy series that isn't all about killing everybody. Oh, fighting it's
1: actually, and war, yeah. Yeah, it's
0: actually kind of sweet. Like, there's some there's some conflict,
1: there's some evil wizards, but it's really not that intense, and I really like that. Uh, one of my favorite authors when I was a kid was William Slater. He was a science fiction author. You told uh, me about him. Talked about, about yeah, William Slater before and he he was really popular like at my school. Mm. All of my uh, co my, all of my classmates have read William Slater. He did books like Interstellar Pig and uh, The Duplicate and one of my favorites was The Green Futures of Tycho. <laughs> and yeah, others they're all uh, time travel stories or they they deal with like they typically deal with some sort of scientific principle. There was uh, the book, Oh, not Strange Attractors, The Duplicate was about a boy who found a duplication machine and how, uh, what he does when he has sort of a clone of himself and that kind of like ruins him morally. Yeah. Uh, Interstellar Pig is about a board game that might be rooted in some sort of science fiction reality. Uh, the Green Futures of Tycho, a young, unpopular boy uh, in a family of geniuses, finds a little time travel widget buried in his backyard mm. and he ends up, uh, you know, ruining his entire life through time travel. Mm. They all have a very dark edge to them, which I appreciate, um, you know, probably not so dark now that I'm an adult, but yeah, when you're 11, those things feel like really, really dark. Mm. A book I've always wanted to see adapted to film is one of my favorite YA books. And that's one I actually gave to our Patreon subscribers at one point. Aww. And it was the snark out boys and the avocado of death by Daniel Manis, Pinkwater. water. Uh, it is about a 14 year old boy. He's very unpopular at school. He's overweight. Uh, he likes listening to classical music. He likes old movies. He named his parakeet Nosferatu. And he makes a new best friend when he gets to high school, a guy named Walter. And Walter has invented a sport called snarking out. Snarking out is you sneak out of your house in the middle of the night while your parents aren't aware, put on a hat, you get on a bus. You go across town to the Snark Street Theater. It's based, uh, the city is based on Hoboken, New, new Jersey, mm. which is where the author is from. And where they have a different double bill every 24 hours, and they're open 24 hours a day. Right. As a projectionist, that sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) But, uh, But as a film aficionado, that sounds amazing. You just go in and out whenever you like. You can drop suggestions in the box. And these kids, who are only 14... Find something that they've never they never knew existed, and that's nightlife. The people who are awake at that time of night, and all the exciting things they do, the right. restaurants that are open at that time, the weird neighborhoods that they run into, and they end up making some other friends. Uh, and of course, there's also uh, like a, a Moriarty and a Sherlock Holmes who are only operating at this time of night. But there's a lot of color to it, and a lot of personality, and a lot of uh, warmth about sort of going to movies late at night. If Quentin Tarantino wanted to make a kid's movie, <laughs> this would, be a, this good would be a good one. You know, another, another young adult
0: series that I really liked as a kid, and they were a big deal when I was a kid, and I mm-hmm. never hear anyone talk about them anymore. I wonder if they're just gone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, was uh, Bruce Coville's My Teacher is an Alien. Who knows? <laughs> Something bu- oh, about a couple I'm- of kids, and they start to suspect that their teacher, who behaves really, really weird, is an alien. And it turns out he is. He's an alien from outer space. Oh, and it was remember- a series of four different books. Oh, okay. About uh, kids who mm. discover that there's like this vast conspiracy of aliens who are infecting like the education system. And it all concludes. Uh, with an installment called "My Teacher Flunked the Planet," <laughs> because they were trying to decide if humanity was okay to actually mm. like go into the stars or not, or if they're mm. just too stupid and warlike. Um, and um, yeah, I really like the way that one evolved. I thought that could be like a really fun series of kind of lo-fi. Like the last one would be kind of expensive, but the first three would be modest spy
1: kids mm. like type of movies where there's a little bit of visual effects but not a lot my teacher is an alien yeah those are fun don't know my teacher's an alien i know a, oh those were really there's fun. a really fun author out there named mel Gilden. he writes he does like a lot of uh adaptations mm. and um like of products and of movies and of tv shows you wrote like hot wheels books and oh. he he's also done a few of his own kind of humorous movies like um Uh, an alien comes to earth and brings a lot of like a band of surfing cyborgs with him that sort of thing and that's fun he wrote one called britney spears is a three-headed alien and it's about like a teenage conspiracy theorist who's following around britney spears and discovers that she is indeed a three-headed alien that's
0: ridiculous all right let's move on
1: (laughs) okay let me get another letter (laughs) uh here's a letter from brett hello brett hi brett uh dear Bibbs and whitney I'm a huge fan of the show and I think I thank you guys very much for always making my week better. Oh Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I'm writing to you now because many of the other recent letters on the show, uh, and a quote by YouTube critic Chris Stuckman, mm. have made me think about how so-called quote crowd pleasers are kind of a bad thing in the film community. In his Ford v. Ferrari review, Stuckman said, I've heard the term crowd pleaser thrown around thrown around a lot for various films, and sometimes nowadays that can be kind of an insult, strangely. I find this quote very relevant to the moment, as it's almost a crime if a movie makes you, quote, feel good. I have to say that I'm guilty of this, trashing Bohemian Rhapsody inside my circle of friends who really like it was certainly a phase for me last year. And Green Book 2 was a movie that I, uh, I was incredibly torn on. I really liked the film, but I couldn't help but think it was a lesser fi- I was a lesser film fan for liking it, especially after the huge controversy with it winning Best Picture. All of this discourse has brought me to another quote from the excellent short story, The Ones Who Walk walk Away from the Omelas, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Quote, Only pain is intellectual. Only evil is interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. This is a story about our refusal to accept something that is happy. And I ask, are we denying ourselves the pleasure of watching a feel-good movie because in the film community we don't want happy mainstream films? Or do these, quote, crowd-pleasers deserve the insults they get? Thanks for taking the time to read my letter. Cheers, as always, Brett. That is an excellent question. That's a fantastic question. I love that yeah.
0: question. That's That really gets to the heart of um, kind of what we do and how we differentiate between... Um, Entertainment mm-hmm. sometimes. Sometimes we make this differentiation: entertainment and art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all art, of course. It's all art, but sometimes uh, th- for and, me, and, and it's all entertainment. Right. This is actually a big question. I'm trying to like think of like the best way to dive into it. Well, here,
1: here's, here's, um, and this is something I actually took from Roger Ebert. He's, mm-hmm. He g- gave me a lot of good viewpoints on film. I think as as I was growing up, um, being being challenged, being confronted. Being made to feel miserable is entertainment. It is a form of diversion and excitement the same way a, quote, crowd pleaser is. The term crowd pleaser, just to offer like a semantic viewpoint, uh, typically refers to a, a very specific type of mainstream film that is made by a big studio in a recognizable genre that is... Widely and obviously manipulative. Mm.
0: Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm reminded of uh, I'm reminded of uh, uh, the, that old quote from mm. Abraham Lincoln: "You can fool some of the people all mm. the time, and all the people some of the time. Yeah, but no. you can't fool all the people all the time." And I feel like that's sort of the thing where a crowd pleaser is trying to fool all of the people for two hours. Yeah, they're just trying to like we're just trying to tick off all the boxes, not piss anybody off, make you feel good, mm. make you feel entertained. But at the end of it nobody, like, felt mm. challenged.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, I think critics don't like the term crowd-pleaser because they use the term crowd-pleaser as sort of a pejorative sometimes. I, I don't. I that's don't. actually that's new to me. I think a, that it, it that's can not be a term. quite a compliment. That's not a term I use, actually, when I write yeah. my reviews. A, a crowd-pleaser, like a big, rousing crowd-pleaser. I, I, I think I've used it before, but uh, it's not, Because like I, well, I'm, uh, when I write my review, I'm not concerned with the crowd. I'm concerned with what I feel. Mm-hmm. So, um if i were to describe something as a crowd pleaser it's usually in one of an ancillary conversation like this mm. but critics if they're you know worth their salt would be able to identify if a film is manipulative they can admit at being manipulated sure. but they can also you know admit that they are able to sort of uh, let that manipulation fade and Criticize the film for everything it's doing, rather than just the immediate immediate manipulation they had in the theater. Right. A lot of audiences who aren't writing reviews and aren't necessarily critiquing the film, mm-hmm. or are, even looking for Or, or yeah, or, or even like delving into anything, you're not, are just going to say that made me feel good. I was manipulated in a way I like. And that's enough for me. Uh, One of my film professors put it this way, film audiences like to be surprised every time they go to the film in the exact same way they were surprised last time. That's
0: true. Now, there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, For one thing... we talk about, like, people want different things from movies. And this mm-hmm. is true between... Everyone likes to create this divide between, like, critics and audiences. First mm-hmm. off, critics are audiences.
1: Yeah.
0: We're audiences who maybe try to have higher standards, mm-hmm. but we're still part of the audience. And any audience member can have higher standards whether or not they're a critic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everyone's standards are individual. Everyone has a different idea about what makes them feel good. A lot of things have a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. Some things just feel good like two people with a lot of romantic tension finally kissing. That's great. We uh-huh. can all agree that that can be really satisfying. and be like, "Oh, thank God." It's like when you know two people, like who are your best friends, mm. and they're constantly flirting and they keep saying they're not they're not interested in each other and then when they finally go out, you're just like, "Finally." <laughs> there was so much tension. Like it's that, it can be that simple. Yeah. Um but I the, the, I think the real heart of the question here isn't the definition of crowd pleaser. I think what hmm. the, something the email brings up is the idea that crowd pleaser is inherently uh, bad, and that true art or true observation comes from some degree of suffering. I don't actually buy that. I think I might have used to believe that, but I think that's a naive perspective. I think.
1: Well, I think it's it's a way to romanticize suffering. True, and, and, and then make make it might justify some of the artistic more, journey. More no- well, it makes. Art seem a little bit more noble if you realize that suffering had to occur to make it happen. Well, I think suffering occurs no matter what we do, maybe Mm -hmm. to varying degrees, but every life has negativity in it, Suffering can occur and no art can come of it. That's
0: also true. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're talking about when it's like maybe when crowd pleaser would be a bad thing, Mm -hmm. you're saying to yourself, when everyone leaves feeling good about Mm themselves— here's the question I think we need to ask to determine whether this movie pleased a crowd was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. Why did it please the crowd? Yeah, well, that's... That's the, that's the big deal. It's like, did it please the crowd because it was exciting, challenging, interesting, everyone felt really stimulated and got something interesting out of it, or did it please the crowd... Because it made everything feel safe and shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, to the extent it, that did it, it did doesn't, it, life doesn't mean anything anymore, that serious problems, like in the case of Green Book, for example, yeah. I'm not a fan, like, racism feels easily solvable. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the kind of crowd pleaser that actually is negative because it is injecting us when we leave, not just within the movie, and all movies have some degree of falsehood in them, but when we leave the theater we run the risk of carrying that falsehood with us. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is something that is a negative thing that some crowd pleasers can
1: do. Yeah, yeah. And and in fact, when um, there's this accusation a lot of critics get for being contrarian, Mm. and first of all- I'm not. (laughs) Shut up, I'm not either. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I am. Wait, no, I'm not. (laughs) Uh, The temptation is always there to Mm. offer a counterpoint. Uh, Especially when critics observe that a popular consensus is forming around a film, something that's being really lambasted, we have an instinct to reanalyze and maybe try to find some good in something, or vice versa. If something's incredibly popular, we try to reanalyze and see what is in this thing that billions of people are consuming?
0: Well, it's also there's also something that's Mm. just as simple as we saw good and bad in something. And when Mm. everyone's focusing on the good, we want to say, but don't forget there is this other thing that is a problem. Or vice versa. Everyone's Mm. saying it sucks. But don't forget there's all this wonderful stuff. Mm. We just want to be part of painting a complete picture. But as a result, if you only look at what we're saying, sometimes it looks like we're giving an incomplete picture.
1: Yeah, like
0: it's complicated and weird and a uh, person by person and case by case. And,
1: and there's and there's points and there's counterpoints and new arguments can be made by you know, some very intelligent critics and people can respond to those counterpoints. It's just a way to continue the film conversation. Yeah, I think all of these points are very important, the positive and the negative. We need the complete picture. Yeah, uh, and when critics lambast, quote crowd pleasers, it's because yeah, it's what you said. We are looking into these things, trying to figure out what kind of messaging. A lot of people are getting, and why are they responding to it to the way they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are these, these, why are these Avengers films so big? Well, they they take place in a morally simple universe. Mm-hmm. There's a good guy and there's a bad guy, and we can cheer for the good guys and you know excel, celebrate and be excited when they are triumphant.
0: Yeah, even in some of the hmm. uh, installments of the MCU, for example, hmm. which play with moral complexity, like. Winter Soldier, Civil War. But not really. But not really. Like, to an extent, it it does boil (sighs) down to people in bright costumes punching each other. Mm -hmm. And so you get the sense that, like, okay, there are big problems in the world,
1: but... They're, that's cool. They're all easily solved because yeah. this is a comic book morally absolute universe, and that's
0: a fantasy. And you it's know. okay to have that fantasy and to escape into that fantasy once in a while. But
1: when that fantasy becomes pervasive, when there there might this, be a downside. Yeah, when there's this popular, we have to start questioning what is society getting out of this? Mm-hmm. Why are they so pleased, the crowd, yeah. by this particular type of fantasy? And that's what we do as critics. We have to start delving into that and figuring out why and figuring out whether or not that's healthy. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, yeah,
1: thanks for that excellent
0: question. That's a really um, fantastic question. I really thank you. Because yeah. sometimes we forget to, like, think about, like, mm. the big questions Yeah, like that. We get so focused on the minutiae of how bad was that last scene in Star Wars? And we're not really why focusing on why is Star Wars popular in the first place? These yeah. are great questions.
1: Thank you for asking mm. them. Let's move on. Okay, here's a letter from Philip. Hello, Philip. Hi. Uh, dear Bibbs and the man with no nickname. I'll have you know I am Rockmeister McCool in the letters column. Uh, <laughs> longish time listener, first time writing in, and apologies for how long this question turned out to be. Don't worry about That's it. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, a few months ago, Netflix made a bit of a stir in testing out a new variable speed option oh, yeah. for their content, with directors such as Brad Bird and Judd Apatow being heavily against it because it's such a violation of how the director intended the viewer to consume their art. Now I have a confession to make. Mm. I do listen to your content at one point three times speed in my podcast what? app. Uh, I have to speak slow, more slowly because you make because you make so much goddamn content that there's no way I can get through it otherwise. Well, gee, I
0: respect that. I totally understand.
1: <laughs> Just lost eight consonants. <laughs> um, However, I am not a monster and when it comes and when I was lucky enough to receive Whitney's excellent radio drama in my podcast feed, I played it at standard speed so I could experience his creation as he intended it. Mm. Well, thank you for not speeding through that yeah um, with that said, once art is out there, is it reasonable for the artist to dictate terms on how it is viewed? And surely with media that battle is already lost just by releasing it in a format we can see at home Well, unless of course the
0: the original format
1: was, yeah. or, or the filmmaker had that in mind. Um, I'll give you a recent example. Being uh, both a Tasmanian and someone who is not particularly squeamish when it comes to watching movies, I sat down with a, uh, great excitement to watch The Nightingale. Mm-hmm. Well, that first twentieth mission, 20-ish, 20-ish minutes were something, weren't they? Yeah, they
0: are.
1: Uh, well, th- that is a rough movie to watch. Yeah, it's, brilliant. It's, it's, rough. Yeah, it's really, really good. But yeah, that that, that, yeah. that opening inciting incident. Uh, <coughs> While I probably would not have left the cinema if I was watching it in that environment, I totally understand why some people did. For me personally, in the comfort of my own home, I paused the video and contemplated on what I had just witnessed for a good five minutes before I was ready to move on with the film. Having finished the film, I was certain that uh, it would wind up being on my personal best of the year. However, if I didn't have the ability to pause and create my own intermission of sorts, just to come with grips with what I had just saw, who knows what I would have thought of the film. And yet, if Jennifer Kent had wanted an intermission for the audience, surely she would have added one into the movie. The play, pause, fast-forward, and rewind buttons have already taken a lot of control away from the director and how their film is viewed. Do these directors have a point, and do you believe being able to play media at a faster rate when when it was intended fundamentally different... Uh, than it was is that fundamentally different than these other functions or is it adding the ability to speed up the content you're watching a good option for people in this day and age of too much content to view everything i eagerly await your educated responses Your sincerely philip
0: um i don't believe in purity tests that's the big deal here but mm-hmm. at the same time i do believe that you can do art a disservice if you mm. go too far in one direction yeah. um Movies are very distinct in sort of the history of art. Mm. Um, There aren't a lot of art forms that need to be consumed within a specific duration, like some music, Mm. uh, movies, television, arguably. Uh, But most art, it's up to the audience to decide how they engage with it. A book Mm. you can pick up and put down. Mm. You're not expected to read every book in one sitting. That's why they have chapters. Uh, you're well, not... And some, and
1: some of them were published in different chapters as well, very depending true. on when you're reading the book from. Very,
0: very true. Um, paintings? There's not like, you will watch this painting for five minutes.
1: Mm-hmm. You or, can, or three hours, whatever. Th- yeah,
0: like you can watch it for however long you want. You can really pour over mm-hmm. every single dab of paint, or you can feel like you got well, the gist of it and move on if it doesn't engage you.
1: Well, cinema is incredibly different, though, because it's yeah. one of the only forms that where time is a vital element.
0: Exactly my point.
1: Mm-hmm. So, on some level... Um, An artist who chose
0: the running time of their movie very carefully, who chose the pacing of their movie very carefully, um, to find out that their movie is being absorbed in a different way can be very, very frustrating. David Lynch... (laughs) (laughs) Look up his iPhone conversation. Well, not even that. Let's look up his original conversation about DVDs. His Mm. initial uh, DVDs that were released of his films didn't have chapter skips. Uh, At his request? Yeah, he specifically said, no, I don't want you to, like... Go to chapter five if you fell asleep or something. I want you to watch the whole thing. Mm. That's how I wanted it. That's his prerogative. He was able to put that on the the DVD and encourage you to do that. At the same time, there's a fast-forward button for a reason. There's still a fast-forward button. You have a modicum of control. Mm-hmm. Whether you're watching well, it at 1.3 speed or just yeah. trying to
1: get to the scene you like. Uh, David Lynch, in fact, he his DVDs that he self distributed of his early films and of Eraserhead, which he still has the rights to, uh, the ones that weren't commercially released, that you had to go to his website to get, mm-hmm. which I bought because I'm a huge fan of Eraserhead. Sure. You couldn't get even to the menu screen before first calibrating your TV properly. Wow. And he said you have to watch it in a dark room. Uh, TVs are calibrated too brightly. I can't control your TV, but now I can. So I, you're going to put in your disc, you're going to control the TV until you can just barely see that image, and then you're going to adjust, like the color bars are on uh, Criterion discs for a reason. Mm-hmm. So you can calibrate the colors and the brightness just so. People usually just take it, take their TV out of the box and don't touch the calibration. A lot of people don't. Or there's like some presets, and they toggle yeah. between like three or four of them. Uh and, yeah, David Lynch was very insistent on you consuming his films in a very specific way. Sure. I very very much admire David Lynch, so when I got those DVDs, I calibrated my TV at his request.
0: Right. Now, that's, your, uh, that's his prerogative
1: to try. David Cronenberg, another filmmaker I greatly admire, feels just the opposite. He loved that DVDs came with chapter stops. He was a big fan of taking his movies and remixing them to your heart's content. Yeah. He's a big tech head. You look at his movies and they're all really low tech. You look at something like Existence. People aren't even wearing wristwatches in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, and all and all of the machines are like these weird organic little pods. There's no machines in that film. But as as a person, he's a big tech head. He's uh, He wrote a book about how people are obsessed with like uh, tablets and iPads and FaceTime and how that's just sort of the incorporated into our lives now. Yeah. And he's very interested in that. And so he said, when you have my movies, go ahead. Watch them out of order. Watch them fast. Watch them slow. Uh, Some people have done some TV research because they wanted to fit more ad space into older programs. So they started running them at like... 1.15 1.15 speed or 1.25 really? speed, like that. I hadn't heard. A, a li- I feel like you should like at least t- be aware of a it. A tiny bit faster than their original uh, broadcast. I feel like you should at least the, be aware with, of what you're to, seeing. To I think, the I don't end, like that. to the end that you can create more ad space. In that like I, I get it, but at the yeah. very
0: least, there should be a warning or something. Like, like they used to is, put like, yeah. in,
1: like in like in like if you watch this an old for, DVD, formatted for your TV. Your TV. Yeah, yeah.
0: every time like I had to watch them, the Police Academy movies. A lot of them mm-hmm. have never been released in widescreen. So like I was watching like a DVD and it said this movie has been formatted to fit your screen. I'm like. No, it hasn't. I have a widescreen, <laughs> you ass. This is made for a 137 cathode ray tube TV. Yeah. Um. So when it comes to art, I mean, there's a lot of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people who feel very, very strongly and have principles that they feel really matter and are important. But there are a lot of people who have the exact opposite mm-hmm. principles. And when it comes down to it, all they're trying to do ...is get you to see their movies in a way that they feel does the movies and you mm. a service. So, for example, to look at the extremes you gave us, David Lynch thinks that you're doing yourself a service by watching the movie as the author intended. Mm. David Cronenberg thinks you're doing yourself a service by watching the movie in a way in which you are comfortable. Mm. Both of those are equally valid, yeah. and I totally get them. I think, personally... Um, I don't I didn't object to Netflix adding a fast forward button because I actually find Netflix's ability to move forward and backward mm. in films uh, very frustrating. I feel like it VCRs and DVD players were much more organic yeah. in the way that a lot of streaming services handle fast forwarding and rewinding. So a fast forward button didn't bug me and I think if Netflix had labeled it a fast forward button, mm-hmm. people wouldn't have been pissed. But instead of just saying watch it like you were like if you were the Flash,
1: Oh, did, like did they that, really
0: say that? No, 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 I'm saying, but, like, that was All the implication right. oh, okay. people were saying. Like, you're going to watch it at everything at 1.5 speed? You shouldn't. No. Every once in a while, I get it. If you just, like, mm. oh, God, I feel so far behind on The Good Witch. I really want to, like, wanna, catch wanna, up in like, a, in, like, a couple hours so I can see the new episode tonight. Okay. I'm not going to judge you too harshly
1: if you watch it at 1.5 speed. Mm. Yeah. I'm really not. I totally get it. And, and for for research purposes, I've watched like TV episodes here and there, and, especially if and, I've seen it before. Yeah, if I've seen it, be- if it's something yeah. I've seen a couple times before, and, and I just, just need to catch up, you're brushing up. There, and, there. Yeah. Are sometimes you can watch something at 1.25 speed, yeah. and that's a little quick, but it's just enough for me to, yeah. You know, while I'm folding laundry and just yeah. getting it in my brain again to to catch up. Yeah. If I'm writing, a, <clears throat> excuse me, writing a review of that film, mm-hmm. if I'm watching it for the first time. I'm going to want to get it as theatrical as possible. That's my personal choice. I think that is a a more ethical way to do it.
0: I think if you're reviewing something, Hmm. you're... It behooves you to see it as close to the original presentation as you can. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the only way to see it is with a screener, and they put a little brand on they it. They put a brand on it. On, like, or, property um, of whatever pictures. Sometimes
1: or, online screener technology isn't up with, and my computer is very old, so it's just going to come in very slowly. So I get 10 intermissions in a 90-minute film. It's yeah. really frustrating. Fair enough. Um, but anyway, we're, we're, we're a little bit off the beaten path. Um, I think what it boils
0: down to is... I encourage. First off, for our podcast, listen whatever the hell you
1: want. I don't care. We're
0: not we're not copiously editing these things for pacing and length. Mm. In case you hadn't
1: noticed, (laughs) we go off on tangents all the time. Yeah.
0: Uh, So I don't personally care because our podcast isn't a carefully curated um, and complicated work of art. They are a conversation, Mm. and if you want to breeze through them kind of quickly, I really don't care. Um, When it comes to movies, I think it is okay. To manipulate them how you need to. Mm. But I do believe, and this is a matter of principle, um, that you should not be using those options willy-nilly. And I don't think you should be doing them in a way that is disrespectful to the artist. Mm. I think uh, if you've seen something before and you want to watch it at a a faster clip, Mm -hmm. cool. I don't give a shit. You've seen it. Yeah. You gave it the prerequisite. Uh, chance, But the you've first had, time you watch something,
1: at the very least, had I really of, think you should watch it uh, the way it's intended. You've had a lot of caffeine, and you really want to get through 2001 Space Odyssey. Right.
0: I get it. That's no, fine. I'm just saying, like, you should give the thing a chance. Because, no, again, movies are intended to work within a specific period of time. That's how editing and pacing works.
1: You know, I'll say this. I, I'm a fan of audiobooks. I like mm-hmm. to listen to audiobooks. I listen to them while I drive. I usually set those a little fast as well, because I feel the readers of audiobooks, in an attempt to uh, attain clarity, tend to read books a little bit more slowly than I think an actor would. I agree. If you hire a professional actor, they tend to read them in a lot more natural way, and it's a lot more conversational. Like they're telling
0: a story. Exactly.
1: And and that's a little bit more tolerable. But the people who read books professionally... Mm -hmm aim for clarity. They There's, want every sentence to be read in kind of this neutral way. Because they're hate getting that. they're getting the word to you, not necessarily their own reading.
0: I, I absolutely hate that. And, I think that I, for me that's anathema to what I would want from an audiobook.
1: Yeah, and, and it's not yeah. how I read it to myself. Yeah. So um you yeah, know if I'm just reading the book I'm adding yeah.
0: inflection, I get, the, I get so, why people like it, I'm not judging you, yeah. but for me I can't listen to an but audiobook so, like that. So
1: I listen to an audiobook and I speed it up a little bit. Yeah. Because
0: d- again, depending a, on the reader. But again, a book uh-huh isn't intended to be consumed only one way. You can consume it over a course of a long there, period there, of time. Yeah. You could have someone read it to you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of people just do oh, re- that. Read it, That's fine.
1: Read it faster, Dad. Read yes, it slower, Dad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's fine, mm-hmm. too. You know, so okay. movies are a slightly different animal, okay. but fair enough. Let's move on. Here's a letter from Leia Teresa. Hello, Leia Teresa. Hi. Uh, dear Mr. Bibiani and Seibold, first I wanted to thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you for doing these amazing podcasts. Oh, uh-huh. fish. Thank you for being, being you and not censoring yourself. Well... Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs>
0: I'm glad you appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for taking your time and interacting with your listenership. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for making my daily commute to work fun. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. That we means are, a we lot of we We try to make the drive time more tolerable. Uh, I am writing this letter, or at least constructing it in my head, after watching Faith Aiken's Aus dem Nicht. Uh, a.k.a. In the Fade. Did you say In the Fade? The, I didn't see Kruger In the Fade. fade? I, I did. Okay. It is about the uh, grief of a mother played by Diane Kruger after losing her husband and son to a bombing with a racist motive. Uh, the movie was hard to watch, uh, even though I knew it would not be a light Christmas movie. The teacher said as much. Oh, I guess it was recommended by a teacher. Mm. Uh, but still, in, about an hour after the ending, I'm still haggard and worn out emotionally. Right. <laughs> the writing process is a bit cathartic. Um, yeah, that's about Diane Kruger's sort of grieving process and how she... Falls back on drugs. There is a movie that made me uh, a scene in that movie that made me ugly cry. When uh, yeah, she has her her husband and her her young son is are killed in a bombing. Her young son is about six. And there's a scene where she has to go casket shopping. Oh,
0: oh! Yeah, she has to go, yeah, has to go casket
1: shopping for a six-year-old, and we oh, get to yeah. see like this rack of caskets for children. No, and one of them is shaped like a fire truck, and that just made me ball.
0: I remember you telling me that like, story. Yeah, I, I think just,
1: that's why I never saw it. I was just watching. <laughs> it sounded too sad. I was watching it in the room with with my wife, and I saw the fire truck, and I just went. <gasps> Like, I, I nearly started crying when I saw the fire truck caskets. Like, that's just cruel. Come on. I know. Anyway. Fire truck casket. Uh, but another reason I'm writing is to ask you the following questions. Mm. Uh, what did you think of the ending, if you've seen it? Uh, in the ending, uh, it, it turns into this sort of revenge story mm. where she, uh, like, the government isn't doing their job on tracking down the terrorists. So she decides to do it herself. It mm-hmm. turns out she knew something about, like... Mm that she she knows something that puts her on the right path and it leads her to the perpetrators okay. um, what do you think of the ending uh, on on one side the ending was clear from the trailer uh, from the moment in the bathroom that's from the movie on the other side it was pretty disappointing that she saw no other option with that I meant felt beckoned to join as shown with the scene before last um, it has a violent ending that's all I'm going to say yeah it's, it, it becomes a revenge story but what do you think um, of it uh, I think it's pretty straightforward, actually. I, I think it is about moral compromise. Like, that's the theme of the movie. Mm-hmm. And about how she was so emotionally destroyed that uh, revenge seemed like one of the only options. And thank goodness uh, revenge was not depicted as something kind of cool or necessary. Right? Um, I hate stories of revenge, frankly. <laughs> but you know why? Because it doesn't happen. People don't get blood revenge. That's not, that's not
0: a real life thing. That's not specifically true. I'm going to say this right now. There are uh, people who hate other people for reasons mm. that may be just or unjust mm. so much that they do indeed try to make them unhappy. Okay. Then then sometimes that takes more obvious
1: levels than others. Mm. Um but un- unless you're like in the mob or something, yeah. blood revenge doesn't exist. Okay, you've never uh, seen She Devil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, She Devil is a movie is maybe one of the maybe, okay, is, maybe. She,
1: is She Devil real life?
0: Yes. <laughs> she Devil is a documentary. I'm talking about
1: humanity, not She movies. Devil. But no, but I think She devil, right. devil
0: I just rewatched this last night. Um yeah uh criterion channel has blessed them mm. a a new susan Seidelman section
1: <laughs> that is just oh, dedicated it. To,
0: not all of them making mr right isn't on there and that bums me out but they got desperately seeking susan and okay. a couple other ones and uh they had she devil uh-huh. on criterion and i'm like yes thank you she devil is great mm. she devil i'll make it quick because she devil is a story of revenge But I think it's a very positive story of revenge, where Roseanne Barr, in her uh, film debut, Mm -hmm. starring role, uh, is married to Ed Begley Jr. He cheats on her with Meryl Streep in, like, her first big comedic role. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he leaves her, and she vows to destroy his life because he basically took hers. And she does that in a way that is uh, very clever and Mm -hmm. very empowering and... I think it's a great revenge story because I do believe it goes beyond just mere petty spite. Mm. Um, However, stories of petty spite can be really fun because people who would engage in petty spite... Are terrible and I want to see them get their comeuppance too And I feel mm. like the best revenge stories Typically dig graves
1: for Everybody by the end mm. you know and, and in a way we're laughing at their The spite within ourselves we sure. can have spiteful Thoughts for sure this is why we Don't uh, do that yeah. because I saw it old boy but, but, It goes really bad Well, Also we're good people and we know yeah. Not to do spiteful well, things yeah, obviously, for, we're for, good the, people,
0: for the most but, like, part In movies we, we uh, sometimes live out Lives yeah. that are completely unlike our own And sometimes but, we're reminded why is all
1: My point is the trope of blood revenge as a motivating factor for an action hero is used at least 10,000 times more often than it happens in real life. That's the irony of
0: it, because we use it as, because something so bad happening Mm. to somebody, like the Count of Monte Cristo, and how he
1: gets completely screwed over. That's a revenge story
0: I like. That's Mm. that's one of the original revenge stories, and Mm. that's one of the ones where what happened to the Count of Monte Cristo was so extreme Mm -hmm. that... Anyone in their right mind reading it would probably go, yeah, I can understand revenge in this instance. (laughs) I I can see this one. This guy kind of, if anyone's entitled to some revenge, it's this guy. And, of course, he goes way off the rails, but especially in the book, maybe not so much in the movie. Um, But it's so extreme that it justifies a larger-than-life story. Hmm. But when so many larger-than-life stories that we consume feature something involving blood revenge mm. as a motivating factor, all of a sudden blood revenge seems a lot more common than it used to.
1: Yeah. It's no longer yeah. the extreme, it's this kind of weird parallel norm. Well and, and I think they're really irresponsible stories because it gives people like you watch something like Death Wish. Yeah. Any of the Death Wishes, there's six to seven of them now, if you count death sentence. Uh <laughs> okay, I think it's seven now, yeah. Uh, Yeah, it it sort of puts in people's heads that blood revenge, like being a street vigilante, is just sort of an okay thing to do. Well, we talked about walking around hoping to witness a crime just so you can get your blood revenge on the fly. Well, it's like we talked about Batman and how like a lot
0: of Batman movies don't deal with the fact that Batman is not healthy. No, not in not in like a romantic. Oh, he's so goth kind of way, but in a that is not someone who is well, and we should not be encouraging this.
1: He's sneaking out at night. But okay. there's so
0: many Batman stories that that kind of part of him has become mm. so normalized. Yeah, take, we don't even think about it anymore.
1: Take out the costume, you just have a violent guy who's beating up thugs in alleyways. Yeah. You put on the costume, and he's an insane guy who goes into alleyways and <laughs> yeah, beats up it was thugs. Weird fetish outfit. <laughs> just walks into bars and beats people up. I don't. He's if you got have these big stupid pointy ears. What the hell?
0: If you were just in a bar, and a guy showed up dressed like a bat, and, every, and started beating <laughs> okay, the shit out of people we, and we asking gonna, them for, for information hmm. about crimes, you would be scared.
1: Okay, let's say let's say it's not a bat. Let's like bring it down to earth because we all have seen we've seen Batman. We're picturing Batman in that scenario. Okay, okay. okay. Let's say he's dressed in like a, a fox costume from a furry convention. Yeah. Like yeah. a buff fox, like a like, tough, yeah. like a tough fox. But he's got a but big like a fetishy fox, pl- but, and he's got like a big plush head, so you don't know who he yeah. is. And he's got, and he's holding like a, a, he's got a machete strapped across his back, yeah, a weapon, like a batarang, but like, like more more obvious. Wh- whether, whether you're a, a good guy or a criminal, you're gonna run out of that room because that's the biggest criminal in the room now. <laughs> Like, George Carlin had a funny bit about the phrase, it's the quiet ones you gotta watch. Uh-huh. It's like, let's say you're in a bar and a guy's sitting over in the corner reading a book not bothering anybody, and another guy's at the bar banging on it with a machete saying, I'm gonna kill the next motherfucker who comes in here! Who are you gonna watch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like there's another question. Well, (laughs) anyway, what I appreciate about In the Fade is that it is about that sort of moral graying and darkening and about how revenge is not solving anything. Revenge is just an additional crime. Somebody commits a crime, somebody gets revenge, another person has committed an additional crime. Yeah. That's all that's happening. Uh, And there's no, there's no moral balance. There's no justice. Mm Nothing is happening. The world is not set aright. It's just a
0: cycle that perpetuates. Exactly.
1: Anyway, there was another question. uh, The the other question is, (laughs) going back to your letter, please uh, be unrelated. Do you? And it is unrelated. uh, Do you think Mm. a teacher should decide if a group of adults watches a film? with a harrowing and impactful impact on individuals like in the fade. A bit of context. I'm going to school for dual training twice a year. Class has a right to a Wandertag, German literal hiking day. Okay. A school day where the class does something together with the pedo- pedo- pedagogical value. For example, going to the zoo with a guided tour or going to a museum. Uh, the higher the grade, the more the class has a say in where they go. So typically, where I am, we decide where to go. This summer, teacher decided for us, and the pupils had no choice really to say no because we have to go to school. They chose to go see you in the Fae. Uh, wow! Again, thank you for the reading. Have a wonderful holiday season. Wish you the best, Liam, Leah, Teresa. Um, I I think that depends a little bit. Like if you're, let's say for example,
0: I'm teaching a class at college, mm-hmm. and I'm teaching a class in American movie history. Sort of a general topic. People coming in expecting to get a general overview of American movie history. If I show Ms. 45, <laughs> that, people aren't expecting that. People aren't necessarily ready for that. that. I mean, it'd be on the syllabus, but even so, that should come with a big old warning saying, this movie can be incredibly upsetting, mm-hmm. and you should probably be aware of that going in. If, on the other hand, I'm, say, teaching a class in the horror genre, mm-hmm. And I show a movie with a lot of horrifying things in it, I feel everyone was on board from day one. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them in day one, this is the horror genre. We're going to watch some really violent movies that tackle really ugly issues. Yeah. And that's part of it. Um, I don't know the whole situation. I don't like what class you were taking. But a film that upset Whitney so much, (laughs) like, maybe isn't what I would do for, like, let's have a fun day off. And I'm going to decide for everybody. We're going to watch, I don't know... Cry in the Dark, the one where Meryl Streep's baby is eaten by dingoes.
1: Like, that doesn't seem like a fun thing. uh, Yeah, again, it depends on the context. I think if you're taking the type of class where uh, that film would pertain to some sort of lesson or philosophy that's being taught. Yeah then that's completely appropriate. Yeah, if it's As, relevant, that's it's, the question, but, relevant, that, but yeah. I don't know if it's relevant. If that was just sort of your fun movie day and you were given no context, that's an irresponsible teacher. Uh-huh. That's an they irresponsible just say, we're,
0: friend. Like, yeah, it's like it we're, we're going to go dump you into something uh, really sad like that
1: with no warning and well, no also, choice. M- maybe the teacher saw, oh, this is going to be like a revenge story and, and they thought, okay, this is going to be like an irrespon- a fun irresponsible like take action. In. Yeah, taken yeah. type movie. Yeah. But you saw In the Fade instead, which is just this really harrowing emotional movie yeah uh, maybe the teacher was taken off guard and the teacher would have to apologize that I would, think yeah. saying sorry that was a little darker than I expected That really <laughs> wasn't what we thought was going to happen and, and I think a responsible teacher would say would we like to discuss this how yeah. did it make you feel what are we learning from this film maybe we can take some lessons from this yeah uh, because they would at least be acknowledged that they took you to see something like in the thing
0: yeah Mm. Anyway, that's, um, that's yeah, That's that's on that. Um, so this has been a really good letters episode. Thank you everybody. Oh, okay. some great questions. Yep. Um, really appreciate everybody writing in. If you want to write in for a future episode of We've Got Mail uh, it is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net uh, Feel free to ask us stuff about Liar Letters co- uh, podcast, Cancel Too Soon Critically Acclaimed uh, The Two Shot even, anything at all mm-hmm. completely unrelated even, just whatever you want and we will happily talk about it on this show, you can find us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. You can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network for bonus content uh, for a variety of things. <laughs> there's a Star Trek podcast. There's an Oscars podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's podcasts about TV movies. You can vote in polls for things. The next mm-hmm. episode of The Iron List. Uh, poll might actually be up by now, but we're taking that poll. Mm-hmm. Um, whole bunch of cool stuff going on over there. Uh, and be sure to stick around, because we have our picks of the worst films of the year coming up on Critically Acclaimed. We're going to have more episodes that cancel too soon. We're going to have all kinds of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Am I forgetting anything? Uh, No, just all kinds of cool stuff. All kinds of cool stuff. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours, <laughs> Bibbs and Whitney.